Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we talk with Boulder County's top public health official about how they're dealing with two health issues at once, the sharp rise in COVID cases and recovery from the Marshall Fire. And we hear about the latest wave of labor strikes in our region. This is about patrollers everywhere. This is about first responders everywhere. And this is about wage employees everywhere. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. COVID-19 cases are spiking again across the state, driven predominantly by the Omicron variant. The statewide rate of Coloradans testing positive is at an all-time high of nearly 30 percent, according to data from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Hospitalizations are also high, although models suggest they could peak within the next week or two. In Boulder County, where cases are at their highest level since any point in the pandemic, residents are also contending with another health issue, the aftermath of the Marshall Fire, which destroyed or damaged more than a thousand homes and structures and forced tens of thousands of people to evacuate. We're joined now by Camille Rodriguez, the executive director of Boulder County Public Health. Camille, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, Boulder County is really dealing with two major health issues right now. It has its highest rate of COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic, and more than 1,000 homes have been burned or severely damaged in the Marshall Fire. I want to talk about COVID-19 first, because we know the Omicron variant now accounts for nearly 100% of all COVID cases in Colorado, and nearly 25% of Boulder County is positive for the virus uh, as of January 10th. What has caused this explosion in spread in Boulder County? It is simply one of those variants that's highly contagious. It has a shorter incubation period and just hits the person faster. Therefore, we are seeing the increase in those case numbers that and the positivity rate that you referenced. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the case surge is compounded right now by Colorado's most destructive wildfire in history. Has Boulder County been able to trace the spread or any um, surges of cases to evacuations? We have not been able to specifically trace an increase in cases to the result of evacuations, for example. And uh, I know that families had to quickly go live with other family members, extended family or friends or shelter um, in a hotel. And all of those very different living arrangements would lead a reasonable person to believe that community spread is going to be a factor. The challenge we've had is that even if one of those evacuees went to um, a testing site and reported their address, their address now may not be there anymore because of the fire. And so we are unable to specifically pinpoint whether or not the increase that we have seen in cases is in part due to the evacuations. But 
With that said, we're not unlike our neighbors in Jefferson County and Broomfield and others who are also experiencing this peak of cases. So in all, it probably did exacerbate some of the community spread a bit, but not because um, anyone really was responsible. We, we know that we were providing extra KN95s and everyone was taking all the precautions they could. And we even had a shelter for evacuees who um, tested positive for COVID so that we could separate some of those folks. Um, that was part of the emergency response. Well, I want to ask about some of the debris and ash and the health considerations around that. We know that some people who lost homes in the fire have been sifting through debris uh, to find personal belongings. On January 5th, uh, Boulder County Public Health put out a statement strongly discouraging people from doing this, regardless of what type of personal protective equipment they may have. Can you briefly touch on some of the health effects of sifting through ash? You know, structure fires um, generate debris, and inside that debris, we can find particulates, exposed asbestos, um, lead-containing building materials, and soot and ash from those structures may also be toxic or contain carcinogens, and all of that can cause negative health effects if inhaled, ingested, or exposed directly to the skin. So in addition, Erin, to the press release that you referenced, on Monday night, there was a regular board of health meeting of the Boulder County Board of Health. And and I introduced um, a public health advisory regarding structural fire debris to the board, which sort of um, articulates what I just shared with your listeners and also urged the public to hire a professional to to sift through the debris. We know that the victims of the fire are looking for heirlooms, documents, and it's so important to have that accessibility and to look through the debris. But we really wanted to uh, put pen to paper in an official document that showed our public, here are the dangers of sifting through debris, and, and here's what you can do to protect yourself and your family. Please work with your insurance company and follow their cleanup protocols, but also hire a professional. Camille Rodriguez is the executive director of Boulder County Public Health. Camille, thanks so much for being here and for talking with us today. Thank you. Have a good day, guys. As communities in Boulder County press ahead with recovery following the devastating Marshall Fire, the city of Louisville is doing so without the Avista Adventist Hospital, which had to be closed due to smoke damage. We learned this week that the hospital is on track to reopen next Tuesday. But the closure comes at an especially difficult time as we approach the third year of the pandemic. Kate Ruder has been reporting on the hospital's closure and what it means for the community in Louisville. She wrote about it this week for Kaiser Health News and joins us now. Kate, thank you for speaking with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with what we know about the hospital. Do you have an idea of the extent of the damage? Yeah, so the hospital had a significant amount of smoke damage, according to its CEO. And they could have had more, but with some amazing and quick thinking work from their staff, they were able to shut off the air handlers within moments of when the smoke first started. And that prevented some further smoke damage. So they've had air quality testing in the building um, since 
a day or two after the fire. And they also deployed 200 air scrubbers to clean the air. Uh, they have a smoke remediation company that's there with um, upwards of 100 employees at certain points working around the clock. Um, but they're a hospital, so the remediation process is complex. You have to sterilize and recertify equipment, and they want to do that as safely and quickly as possible. Sure. And in your piece, you write that some hospital workers were actually fighting off the flames with buckets. It sounds like a really harrowing ordeal. I'm wondering what the hospital CEO had to say about that. You know, the CEO of uh, Vista Aventis Hospital recounted how some of the staff knew that their homes were in the path of the fire. And after making sure their family were safe and evacuated, they stayed at the hospital to get patients to safety. And, you know, that is incredible. Uh, I was moved in hearing about that selflessness and the heroism of those workers at Avista Aventis Hospital and also at Good Samaritan Medical Center in Lafayette, which also evacuated some of its patients on December 30th. Uh, at Avista, those workers fought to protect the building with a handful of them using buckets and hoses to protect these flammable oxygen tanks that were outside. And then there were people inside who were fighting to protect um, the patients and get them safely to other hospitals. You know, all the while their neighborhood around them is on fire. Hmm. Do you have a sense of how much of the hospital staff were displaced? Uh, you mentioned, you know, some of the workers there knowing their homes were in the path of the flames. Do you have a sense of how many might have been impacted by the fire? Yeah, so in my reporting, I was able to find out that at least 36 healthcare workers um, at area hospitals have lost their homes as part of the Marshall Fire. And so that includes people that work at Avista Ventus, but also at the other SEL um, hospital that I mentioned, Good Samaritan, and also Boulder Community Hospital. And so many more healthcare workers have smoke or property damage, maybe closer to 100 that could prevent them from returning. So this is not a static situation, it's evolving, but, and those numbers could change, but that's what we know right now. And I'm wondering how the loss of these 100 or so ICU and acute care beds at Avista uh, affect hospital capacity in general on the front range. Are hospitals in the area able to take on patients who aren't able to get care in Louisville? So one thing that I learned in my reporting is that bed capacity refers not just to the physical bed itself, but also the healthcare workers needed to take care of that patient. So having you know a healthy, robust staff at hospitals is really important to support people when they get sick. And that can be challenging when community spread of a variant like Omicron is high or if you have a disaster like a fire that dislocates people and creates, you know, additional stress. In Colorado, during the pandemic, hospitals set up uh, something called a hospital transfer station. And as I understand it, that's a way to move patients nimbly from small to large hospitals, depending on staffing or capacity. So a spokesperson for the Colorado Hospital Association said that came in handy during the Marshall Fire as they were deploying all these ambulances to evacuate patients from the Vista or to Good Samaritan to other hospitals, and that they'll continue to use that transfer station throughout the pandemic and the Omicron surge. Right. Well, Kate, what else are you going to be keeping an eye out for as folks work to reopen the hospital? Yeah, you know, the thing that, um, you know, I was really struck with, I, I spoke with a forensic nurse whose home was destroyed in the fire. And she talked about, you know, how scary it was to see the fire on the nearby golf course and see how little was left of her property when she returned. 
She also talked about the deep fatigue that she had in working, you know, throughout the pandemic. In her job, she examines victims of sexual assault and other violent acts. And she just talked about how difficult it was to wear a mask for herself and for her patients in those situations. And it just makes me think that, you know, healthcare workers want the pandemic to be over too. And so to have that long-term stress and then the most destructive fire in state history is just another level. It's unbelievable, she said. And um, so I think that, you know, covering how our community rebuilds after the wildfire is something I'm going to keeping my eye on in terms of healthcare workers and, and others. Yeah, absolutely. Kate Reuter is a health and science reporter based in Colorado. You'll find a link to her reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Kate, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Grocery store workers in the Denver area are on strike after their union rejected the latest contract offer from a chain of stores owned by Kroger Company, the nation's largest traditional grocery store chain. Members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 7 allege unfair labor practices by King Supers, which has accused the union of the same thing. The strike is the latest labor dispute in the Mountain West region. And as KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, the wave of unrest may continue. It's early Wednesday morning at the King Supers grocery store in Denver's Capitol Hill neighborhood. The parking lot is unusually quiet, but drivers honk in support of picketing workers who are demanding higher wages as the cost of living continues to rise. Worker Gigi Jones has a sign around her neck asking shoppers to avoid King Supers. I mean, I grew up in Denver. Born and raised. And I don't want to be edged out of my community and my, my city. So I have to make sure that I can afford the rent. Jones works two other jobs to make ends meet. Her situation is not uncommon. According to a United Food and Commercial Workers survey of workers in Colorado, Washington, and California, nearly two-thirds of them say they don't earn enough to pay for basic expenses. This data keeps Kim Cordova awake at night. She began working as a grocery clerk in 1985 and quickly became an organizer. Today, she's president of the union local chapter. I became a strong union member and activist uh, really to help fight for those that don't fight for themselves or can't fight for themselves. Her fight for a new contract affects roughly 8,400 workers in Colorado and has involved months of negotiations. These poor frontline essential workers have had such a, an emotional, physical, mentally taxing 23 months. Cordova's also been asking for trained security guards. She points to the tragedy at the Boulder King Supers, where a gunman killed 10 people last March. My members were those that survived, and those in the other stores within the industry are worried about safety. She says grocery employees have navigated unsafe working conditions, while King Super's parent company has seen massive profits. Sales at Kroger, the largest grocer in the U.S., were $2.6 billion in 2020. Kroger, for its part, has come to the table with $170 million over the next three years in wages and bonuses. It's offering a $16 an 
an hour starting rate for checkers. Those with five years experience would see their pay rise to $21 an hour. The Mountain West has played host to other recent labor disputes, from janitors at Denver's airport to nurses in Kalispell, Montana. These are notable events in a region where union activity isn't always robust, with the exception of Nevada's casino and resort workers. It's definitely the first time in my lifetime a lot of Americans, and particularly young Americans, are really paying attention to the issue of unions and labor rights. John Logan studies labor at San Francisco State University. He says the pandemic has highlighted uneven dynamics between workers and employers. And young people are taking note. Nearly 80 percent approve of unions. You know, they've been influenced by these outside social movements, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. 23-year-old Zinnia Kenny led a strike last year at a Park City, Utah theater that's part of the Sundance Film Festival. Workers at Redstone 8 Cinemas were making $10.50 an hour, not nearly enough to afford a one-bedroom apartment that averages $1,500 a month there. One night, a colleague suggested they go on strike. We laughed it off and dismissed it as something impossible, but it did get me to thinking, why is that a joke? Why do we think that's impossible? Their strike resulted in a $2 pay raise. Utah has one of the nation's lowest rates of union participation, but another battle has been brewing with Park City ski patrollers. They voted to strike if Vail Resorts doesn't offer the raises they've been fighting for since last spring. Patroller Patrick Murphy. This is about patrollers everywhere. This is about first responders everywhere. And this is about wage employees everywhere. Ski patrollers at the resort start at 15 an hour. They say it's a meager wage given the job's demands. For labor scholar Logan, these disputes aren't likely to slow down anytime soon. He says labor victories are a contagion. When people see other workers taking risks that pay off, they feel empowered to do the same. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You'll find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. In part one of our series on the Republican River, we showed how dropping river flows and groundwater levels in the northeast Colorado basin are impacting farmers and ranchers. From a flood in the 1930s to extended drought today, the river is managed by an interstate compact requiring a certain amount of water to flow from Colorado to Kansas and Nebraska. To meet it, 25,000 irrigated acres of Colorado farmland must soon be shut down. KUNC's Adam Reyes has more on the history that got the basin to this point. There's a grim stoicism about the way Tracy Travis approaches his work. It's not a job that I would like to have, but somebody has to do it. Travis is a farmer, bus driver, and seasonally a water engineer on the Republican River's North Fork, just west of the Colorado-Nebraska border in Yuma County. This is one of the river's only parts in Colorado with consistent water flow. We pump water out of the ground and into a tank, which flows over into a 42-inch pipeline that runs about 12 miles down to the river. That pipeline ensures water reaches a certain height as it crosses into Nebraska. Pumping usually begins around November and ends the next year. There's a lot of mixed feelings about the pipeline's existence, but to understand what is at stake without it, you need to know what was going on 87 years ago. 
Today, the river is described as not even deep enough to drown in, but in 1935, it flooded, killing dozens. Up to that point, Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska managed the water in their respective borders independently. At the time, there was hardly any irrigation other than surface water irrigation from the rivers themselves, and very little in Colorado. That's Yuma County Commissioner and Farmer Robin Wiley. After the flood, the states wanted to prevent future disasters. The federal government said it would help with the construction of dams and reservoirs, but only if the river was managed cooperatively. So the 1943 Republican River Compact was signed. And since then... A lot of wells were drilled, and that really increased the viability of irrigated production, especially in Yuma County. Wiley's family has farmed here since the 1950s. He says the biggest challenge from the compact today was left out of it for years. There was no inclination that the groundwater was tied to the surface water. If water wasn't pulled directly from the river or the ground immediately around it, Colorado assumed it didn't affect flow levels, the primary measurements for compact compliance. That assumption was challenged in 1998 when Kansas sued Nebraska over its groundwater use. And then Colorado got drug into it. That brought all this to the head. Even though the word groundwater wasn't originally in the compact, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the fact that using it affects river flows is enough to make it inherently part of the agreement. While Colorado didn't officially recognize the connection prior to the ruling, it doesn't mean the state was treating groundwater as an unlimited resource. Don Brown knows this well. I'm pretty proud of Colorado, actually. We were way ahead. A permit system started here in 1965 on the belief groundwater would quickly start to disappear. I mean, they were still drilling wells in Nebraska permit-free 15 years ago. By the mid-1970s, most people couldn't get a permit anymore. It was over. Brown also served as the state commissioner of agriculture under Governor John Hickenlooper. He thought a lot about that history during his tenure in government. They, to a large degree, had a lot of foresight. So they knew the day they were doing it, they were mining it. I mean, if we were going to mine it, it had to be in an organized fashion to try to stretch it out over a lot of years. Why did they still let people keep on drilling holes, even though they knew they were mining it? It's really easy to say with our mouths full that we shouldn't be using this resource. But we eat cheaper in this country than any other country in the world. And so it's really easy to say, well, we don't need this here. And then one day we wake up and realize we're hungry. So I don't know where one draws those lines. Ultimately, the Colorado State Engineer makes most final decisions here. That office manages multiple interstate river compacts, and Dick Wolf was in that position for about 10 years until retiring in 2017. When I reflect back on it, I, I don't know if there's too much more we could have done differently. As water levels dropped, the interstate agreements forced officials to make many sacrifices, like draining Bonnie Reservoir on the river's South Fork in 2011. I'd have to say that was the toughest one. Colorado's efforts to reduce groundwater use didn't guarantee the state couldn't fall out of compliance. And around 2010, it nearly did. It's complex, but the way the compact works, water evaporating from the reservoir made Colorado get less credit for the amount of water actually sent across the border from the South Fork. We can stop the irrigation of the crops out there, or we can stop the evaporation. Colorado also almost fell out of compliance because of dropping water levels in the North Fork. To solve the problem, they chose to buy out irrigation wells from a producer and connect them to that pipeline. 
It drops the water right before a measurement gauge in the Nebraska state line. And it rings the bell, we always used to say, and helps us in meeting our quantities. At $60 million, Wolf says the pipeline was the most practical, cost-effective option. It takes another 600000 to run it every year. It is a little ironic that the problem we got into for compact compliance was because of well pumping, and we're also using pumping from wells to get us to stay in compliance. Others out here say the pipeline is just a Band-Aid. There are a lot of ideas, but a full-formed, long-term cure is not yet in sight. Looking over the water flowing out of the pipeline, water engineer Tracy Travis thinks about the wells on his family's farm in Burlington. When they were drilled in the 60s, they were about a 1,000 gallon a minute wells, and now they're about 300 gallon a minute wells. Those wells are far south of here, where groundwater levels are much lower and the Republican River's South Fork barely flows. The deepest sections of groundwater are around the very much still flowing North Fork here, so things are not nearly as dire. But then again, they once weren't so dire on the South Fork either. Is there anything that gives you hope in all of this? Um, rain. <laughs> but that won't save us, but it, it would help. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, significant portions of Yuma County have been in severe drought for much of the last two years. Adam Reyes, KUNC. That story was produced in part by the America Amplified Initiative. America Amplified is a national public media collaboration focused on community engagement reporting. In our next piece, we'll explore farmers' efforts to change what and how they grow so they can save water in the grounds and streams of the Republican River Basin for generations to come. I'm not a real greenie, but I do recognize that, you know, we're, we're stewards of this resource and that we need to act that way. You'll also find our previous reporting on the Republican River at KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, police often rely on eyewitness accounts to identify potential suspects. But experts have suggested these accounts can often be inaccurate given the trauma of seeing a crime take place. We'll hear how the misidentification and wrongful arrest of a Black teenager led to a grassroots effort here in Colorado to change the practice. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.